Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to share with you that my online course, The Neurodiverse Classroom, is available now for elementary teachers. You can enroll anytime at learnwithdremily.com slash teachers. I created this course because every classroom is already a neurodiverse classroom. You became a teacher because you love watching students thrive, but you're starting to question if you can meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners. I see you. You are emotionally exhausted, especially after the past three years, but you're not alone and I'm here to help. So if you're ready to learn how to connect with every student and unlock their spark for learning again, sign up at learnwithdremily.com slash teachers. That's learnwithdremily.com slash teachers. Okay, y'all, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast, where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist specializing in raising and teaching children and teens diagnosed with autism, ADHD, anxiety, learning disabilities, and or giftedness. Each week, I share my thoughts on a topic related to psychology, parenting, education, or parent-teacher collaboration, which you can read on my blog or listen here. If you want to learn more about me and my online resources for parents and teachers, visit learnwithdremily.com. So parents, you will notice that for the next four weeks, I'm going to be talking directly to teachers. So after today's podcast or blog that you're reading, I'm going to be specifically talking to teachers for some topics that are important to them. I invite parents to stay on, to read or listen. The reason I change my focus from time to time is so that parents can hear things from a teacher's perspective and teachers can hear things from a parent's perspective. So there'll be a time in the future where I just talk to parents for a few weeks. So sharing our stories and perspectives is the foundation of effective collaboration, and I hope you stay for it all. So let's get started. This week, we are talking about motivation. So what drives motivation for our neurodivergent youth? We're going to dive into how interests build skills. And this is true for all of us, but it's especially true for kids developing with asynchronous skills. So when I talk to parents and teachers of neurodivergent children and teens, especially those on the autism spectrum, I often hear, I can't figure out what motivates her, or he only cares about video games, or even I can't get them to care about anything. So what is this power of interests and and how can we work with it? So here's the thing. We are all motivated by our interests, but we are also socially motivated to please others. Most of us are. Being socially motivated means you can ignore your own interests for a short time to focus on what's expected of you at school or at work to please the person asking you to do something or to please your peers sitting around you. Yet many neurodivergent individuals I've worked with over the years have explained to me that they just aren't that socially motivating. I'm sorry, motivated, meaning that they don't feel a need to please others unless they know that person really well and they trust them. So as adults, we must prioritize connecting with neurodivergent youth through their interests to build trust rather than expecting them just to do as we say simply because we ask them to. We also can't make someone interested in or care about something that's not their thing. So if you can't figure out what your child is interested in, here's what I want you to know. 
I've actually never met a kid without interests. So I want to stop here and and say there are some times when a child or a teenager may be experiencing depressive symptoms that lead to feeling a loss of interest in things they were once interested in. And if this is the case, please talk to your child's pediatrician or mental health provider about your concerns. What I'm talking about here is finding the interests of a child when they may just be into one thing or their interests may not align with the world around them, with their peers, with their classmates, with the curriculum. For instance, their interests may be limited to a specific topic or they may hide their interests from others because they feel anxious that they won't fit in. So it's kind of hard to figure out. If you're a teacher trying to figure out what motivates a child, talk with their parents and they'll know. Parents, if you're seeing an unmotivated kid at home, talk with the teacher to see what the child is capable of in a school environment when surrounded by peers. Sometimes the expectations at school will bring out things that home environment doesn't. Once we find the interest, then we can use it to bridge a child's current skills to stretch them into learning new skills. The motivation to try something new may or may not be through social connection to please others. But through connection to interests, then we are already using something that becomes intrinsically motivating to lead into a skill that we want eventually to be intrinsically motivating. So let me explain. When my son was young, he loved Angry Birds. Remember Angry Birds? (laughs) Well, it started as a fun game. We would play together on my phone after dinner before bath. But then this interest went deep. So we expanded beyond the game with toy, actually toy figure Angry Birds, the characters, the slingshots, the building blocks. To this day, I still know the names of all the Angry Birds. Did you even know they had names? (laughs) So anyone listening who has a child with a very strong interest knows that you have some random knowledge in there from doing something um, with your kid that maybe someone else hasn't done. So around this same time for my son, he was also uncomfortable tolerating the sensory demands that came from playing outside. We played with Angry Bird characters and their slingshots and blocks inside, and he was really motivated with playtime with us based on that interest, but we couldn't get him to play outside. Then one day it snowed. Snow in North Carolina is a big deal because it might only happen one time a year, but it was too cold for my son. Clothes were too bulky, and it was more fun and warm inside. Then I had an idea. I told him that the Angry Birds wanted to go outside. That was it. His face lit up and he was willing to push through his sensory discomfort to take his interest into the snow. We weren't outside very long, just long enough to play the same way he had played with them inside, but he experienced the snow and every year since he has enjoyed the snow more and more. This got him over the hump. So just a month later, we were at the beach because weather is weird in North Carolina Anyway, sand has always been hard for him, too. So we took the Angry Birds to the beach. He didn't build any drip castles. He didn't swim in the ocean. And he didn't even put on a bathing suit. I think he was wearing jeans that day. But we used his interest in Angry Birds to bridge his skill of playing inside to his skill of playing in the sand. And just a month earlier, he had built the experience of playing in the snow. And that had gone well. So all the play was the same, but he was working on experiencing his play in a new, less comfortable location, but this was still building connections in his brain. Because he was interested in the play, it was worth it to him. 
Hey y'all, I'm excited to announce that registration is now open for my summer workshops for elementary educators. We will be joining each other live via Zoom on Wednesday mornings in July to learn about reframing behavior, designing social emotional lesson plans, how to write social stories that work, and also how to teach children about each other's neurodiversity. To learn more, go to learnwithdremily.com slash summer. Now back to the show. So how are external rewards going to lead to intrinsic motivation? Why is this important? So my son was intrinsically motivated to play with his toys of interest and was so interested in them that he was able to tolerate the sensory demands of cold weather and sand. Intrinsic motivation is always preferred because it gives our children a sense of autonomy and pride that's naturally rewarding. They naturally are motivated to do the thing just because they want to. Practicing skills is an emotionally difficult experience for many neurodivergent kids, but pairing skill development with interest makes it feel doable for them. In last week's post, I explained that there are times to use external rewards as motivation temporarily to jumpstart a child's initiation of a new routine or activity. So sometimes children are too anxious to try things for a first time, but once they're over that hump, then they are intrinsically motivated to try again if it went well. If a skill seems too scary due to anxiety or too hard due to a weak executive functioning skill, try an external reward at first, and that might be helpful. For instance, it's okay to reward children with executive functioning weaknesses for remembering things. You won't reward them forever, but you help them feel successful at first, and then they feel proud while learning, and that pride will create an intrinsically motivating feeling of success, and that will lead them to want to repeat it. So once a child feels good about their progress, they no longer need an external reward. Feeling satisfied with their accomplishment is the reward. So what about reward systems and behavior charts? So while setting expectations for everyone is important and necessary, popular school-wide systems like positive behavior interventions and support, or PBIS, are actually not enough for our neurodivergent kids. Knowing what's expected of you doesn't necessarily or magically make you have the skills to be able to do the thing you're being asked to do. Many students will adjust to the behavioral expectations of school based on a school-wide plan, but some will not be able to. And when a student cannot meet school-wide expectations, not due to a lack of trying hard enough, but due to a weakness in their neurodivergent brain, we need to start problem solving and getting curious. As parents and educators, if we see or hear a pattern of a child feeling defeated or negative about themselves, we need to take action. Negative self-talk often means students are trying their hardest, but are looking around at their peers and realizing they can't do what's expected within the current situation. This is the time to connect and get curious about what is hard for a child in any given situation and balance that with the expectations set before them. Even when using an individualized behavior chart to track progress, it must still be private. When behavior charts are shown to everyone, these visual systems gain power rooted in earning external rewards from the teacher by being emotionally regulated and compliant. 
If we only rely on external rewards to motivate students, we teach them to only seek praise and approval from others and risk silencing their own voice of what feels good to them. We also want to remember that when teachers track student behavior publicly, such as clip charts, we can inadvertently add embarrassment and shame to a child's day that will only lead to more problematic behavior and emotional harm. If you want to read more about my thoughts on clip charts, you can find the link to this on my website. I wrote an article for Parents Magazine a couple years ago with all my thoughts about clip charts, and you can go there to find it. So when tracking student behavior privately, the benefit is that teachers can identify a student's lagging skill without shining a light on their flaws. And we can just use that as teacher-parent communication. So how do we make learning attainable for all? Neurodivergent students face more challenges at school than their neurotypical peers. This is just the truth. They're led through a standardized curriculum that doesn't always match their variable learning profile. And for some, this will build character and grit, while others may feel helpless and lose their motivation. This often looks like they don't care, but they do. All children care but they might let go of their effort because the learning doesn't feel attainable to them. In other words, it's easier to not care or look like you don't care than to continue trying and failing. We must make learning feel attainable to every student by incorporating their interests and building their trust so learning feels relevant to them. Some students will rise to the expectations set forth by the school-wide plan and some will need strong relationships rooted in trust to make the work of learning feel worth it to them. Success is not only in the mastery of an expectation set by someone else. Success comes from a child setting goals based on their own set of skills and interests, coming back and trying again and again until they are beaming with pride that they have accomplished their goal. Then it's our job as parents and teachers, to teach them how to go out and find their next goal. So let's stay connected. I'll see y'all next week.